This is Medieval Death Trip for Saturday, December 16th, 2017, episode 48, concerning the sharp wit, unorthodox wisdom, and brutal death of John the Scot. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. And around these parts, we've just wrapped up our fall semester this week with end-of-term exams. Today's text features some students getting revenge on a hated schoolmaster, and I imagine there might be some of you out there who could get a bit of exam week catharsis out of such a tale. The subject of our text today is the 9th century scholar John, or Johannes, Scotus Eriugena, also known as John the Scot, or sometimes Duns Scotus, though this latter name is a source of potential confusion because there's a much more famous Duns Scotus from three centuries later, uh, and that's the one whose name became the word dunce uh, as a term of abuse for the followers of his brand of scholasticism when it had become old-fashioned and a bit stagnant in the face of Renaissance humanism. Uh, so it was a word that shifted over time from referring to an academic who refuses to hear new ideas to someone generally dull-witted or incapable of learning. As for our John, he has his own interesting reputation, as is perhaps best summarized by this statement from Dennis S. Nerny. It may be doubted whether there is any Christian scholar of Western Europe equal in genius and prestige with Johannes Scotus Eriugena, of whom history has so little to say and legend and conjecture so much. His name, his origins, his profession, the authenticity of a number of his works attributed to him, his opinions, the time of his birth and his death, have all, in various ways and degrees, given rise to a mass of conflicting views that leave him less a man than an unquiet shade that troubles the half-light of history. Now, most discussion of Eriugena these days focuses on his writings and how he brought more Eastern ideas into Western theology but we're not going to be reading his work. Instead, we're going to be peering into that half-light of history in which his shadowy biography dwells. We're going to hear William of Malmesbury's little biographical sketch of John the Scot, which certainly zigzags back and forth across the line separating history from legend. But before we get to William's account, let's establish what modern historians have determined about John's life. We know he was born in the early 9th century, most likely in the British Isles. Tradition says he was from Ireland, which is why he's called the Scot. Uh, More on that in a minute. But his nationality has been disputed. In the 840s, he arrived at the court of Charles the Bald, Holy Roman Emperor and grandson of Charlemagne. He worked as a teacher at court, but it's uncertain whether he held any actual clerical status. At least one medieval critic of his work asserted that he held no rank in the church. Now, that doesn't rule out his being a rankless monk, but no surviving sources say affirmatively that he was a monk. We also don't know where he got his education, though we do know that he learned ancient Greek, a fairly unusual skill in the British Isles during the Dark Ages. Because of this, some have proposed that he was a cosmopolitan world traveler who learned Greek and Greek philosophy in Athens, while others have argued that, while uncommon, Knowledge of Greek could indeed have been obtained in 9th century Ireland. It's entirely possible that he is that somewhat rare creature in medieval texts, the learned layman. 
But even that's another one of those things we might put an asterisk by, just noting that learned laymen may not have been quite the mythological creatures they seem, but being outside of the institutional framework of monastic libraries and scriptoria, whatever they did produce wasn't preserved uh, to the same degree that the work of clerical writers was, um, assuming they applied their learning towards textual production at all. Um, They may have had other outlets. One of John's major learned accomplishments, which William of Malmesbury mentions directly, uh, was his translation from Greek into Latin of the works of Dionysius the Areopagite, uh, now known as Pseudo-Dionysius, a 5th century author who claimed the persona of the Athenian converted by Paul in Acts. But this fact wasn't settled until the late 1800s, so for medieval theologians, Pseudo-Dionysius was just Dionysius. He wrote mystical texts, Um, the only one of which I've read, I think, is the Divine Names, which is a great example of apophatic mysticism, whereby you try to explain or define something ineffable by saying what it isn't, usually in an extensive litany. To appreciate John's task in tackling the writings of Dionysius, here's a sentence from the Divine Names, as translated into English, of a sort, I guess, Uh, by the Reverend John Parker in 1897. For as things intelligible cannot be comprehended and contemplated by things of sense, and things uncompounded and unformed by things compounded and formed, and the intangible and unshaped formlessness of things without body by those formed according to the shapes of bodies, in accordance with the selfsame analogy of the truth, the superessential illimitability is placed above things essential, and the unity above mind above the minds, and the one above conception is inconceivable to all conceptions, and the good above word is unutterable by word, unit making one every unit, and superessential essence and mind inconceivable, and word unutterable, speechlessness and inconception and namelessness, being after the manner of no existing being, and cause of being to all, but itself not being, as beyond every essence and as it may manifest itself properly and scientifically concerning itself. If you thought Aquinas was a little hard to listen to with some of his word salad, um, just take a stab at Pseudo-Dionysius. Uh, and I'm being a little unfair to Pseudo-Dionysius, because there are better English translations out there that disentangle some of these phrases a bit more clearly, uh, but still, it's heady material and not the kind of thing that translates easily. William of Malmesbury even offers some rather barbed criticism of John's efforts, but I think it's easy to see why he may not have produced the most readable of texts. Now, let's look at this question of why Johannes Scotus, John the Scot, was Irish. Is this just a bit of cultural ignorance, like all the Agatha Christie aristocrats who assume Hercule Poirot is French rather than Belgian? Well, it might be a little bit of that, but it's also part of a general ambiguity around the word Scot. So Scotus or Scotus, it appears with both two T's and just one, uh, is a Latin word that's first attested in the late 4th century CE. We don't know its etymology. It doesn't seem to relate to any known Celtic or Brythonic names for cultural groups or tribes, and when it appears in other languages, those generally seem to have borrowed it from Latin. There might be a connection to an early Gaulish by-name or vocational name, Scotios, 
that seems to be related to some kind of cutting tool. So maybe Scott comes from a cultural association with a particular tool, uh, like Saxon may have come from the word for axe, a characteristic weapon of those people. Uh, but all of that is just conjectural. In the early sources, Scoti can refer to the inhabitants of both Ireland and Scotland. I think it would be fair to say that it was used like Celt is used today. We could say John the Celt, and that would indicate that he could be from either Ireland or Scotland, or Wales or Galatia. Uh, you'll find Old English texts, including the Old English translation of Bede, that call Ireland itself Scotland. And we know they mean Ireland, partly by context, and also because the Latin version says Hibernia, the classical Latin name for Ireland, though earlier Latin writers never actually employed any singular adjective to refer to the inhabitants of Hibernia. Post-classical authors use Hibernia to refer to Ireland, but also start using Scotia to refer to both Scotland and Ireland, or, in other words, the lands inhabited by the Scoti. It's only when the Kingdom of Scotland is consolidated in the 9th century that we begin to see Scotia being restricted to what we would now call Scotland. But even then, it takes a few centuries for the overlap with Ireland to be fully removed. Um, it's still showing up as late as the 1400s that Ireland is being called Scotland. Another interesting fact is that the Old English form of Scot indicates that it would have been pronounced like other Old English SC words, that is, with an SH sound. Shot or Shiota, Shotland. I guess it does have a bit of a Sean Connery quality to it, Shotland. But this form reverts to the SK sound we use today, and probably due to Scandinavian influences, where SC is SK. Now, that's the modern linguistics. The Middle Ages had their own etymologies, most of which don't really hold up to scholarly scrutiny. In the fad of linking all European cultures to Homeric antiquity, the Scots were linked to the Scythians via a Scythian princess supposedly named Scota, to add to the confusion, some sources also make a distinction between the Scots and the Picts, with the Picts being the people who live in present-day Scotland and the Scots being the Irish. Um, in Bede's version of this Celtic migration, the Picts come from Scythia and first try to settle in Hibernia, only to find it already full of Scots, who have been there for ages and who send them packing to northern Great Britain. But then, when the Picts get there, they have no women, so they arrange to import them in from the Scots, and presumably that helps explain the Celtic commonalities between the two people. And then, of course, you have Irish missionaries setting up communities in northwestern Britain, and you have Pictish Scots settling in Ireland, and it all does become a kind of glorious mishmash, so maybe our medieval authors can be excused some of their confusion. Though, at the same time, it also does smack a bit of the long tradition of the English, or to be fair, imperial powers generally, uh, not caring too much about distinguishing the fine differences between local cultures. You got it wrong, you bloody little frog. Firstly, I am not a bloody little frog. I am a bloody little Belgian. Okay, let's get into our text. As I mentioned, this account of John is by William of Malmesbury from his Gesta Pontificum Anglorum, or History of the English Bishops. That said, the text I'm reading is actually from a translation of the Chronicle of Roger of Howden by Henry T. Riley from 1853. Roger has basically lifted William's passage verbatim and inserted it into his book, a common enough practice in the day. 
And I'm using it because there is no public domain translation of the Gesta Pontificum. And while I believe I have a good case for fair use regarding using more recent translations on this show, I'd prefer to get permission from living translators when possible. And I haven't yet reached out to Michael Winterbottom, who has a complete 2007 translation of the Gesta Pontificum. Also, I found this text when I was reading Roger of Howden, and only when researching a bit more learned that he'd ripped it straight out of William's book. So I already had this version teed up, as it were. Uh, But that does remind me, if you are a medievalist who is or knows a translator who would be fine with having their work included on this show, drop me a line. Uh, Obscurity of a text is no problem. In fact, that's a feature. Um, And I'll just throw this out there. If any of you listeners have an in with Nigel Bryant, I would love to use his translation of the history of William Marshall to expand on our look at King John. Or if anyone knows Leslie Watkiss, who translated Thomas of Marlborough's History of the Abbey of Evesham, I can't dig up any good contact information for either of them, um, so that would be a really nifty Christmas present. All right, one further linguistic note before we start. In this extract, you'll hear John Scotus described as facetious. This is a word that's evolved in its meaning since the mid-19th century when Riley produced this translation. Today, I would say that facetious has a predominantly negative connotation. A facetious remark is a smarmy one, or smart-alecky, or snarky, or flippant. Uh, That's how I take it, anyway. The original meaning of facetious is simply witty or humorous. And in the dictionaries I've just consulted, that meaning is apparently still widely recognized, though, like I said, I don't think I've ever heard it used in a context where it was a compliment. Egregious has suffered a similar fate, where it once had a primarily positive meaning as distinguished or excellent or wonderful, and has shifted today to a pretty much exclusively negative meaning, flagrant, outrageous, excessive, overblown. Anyway, when John is called facetious here, he's being praised for his wittiness, though, as we'll see, his wit does have a sharp edge to it. So here is Roger of Howden's word-for-word borrowing of William of Malmesbury's account of the life of John the Scot. In the time of King Alfred, there came into England one John, a Scot by birth, a man of shrewd intellect and of great eloquence. Having a long time previously left his country, he came to France to the court of Charles the Bald, by whom he was entertained with great respect and was honored by him with his particular intimacy. He shared with the king both his serious and his more merry moments, and was the sole companion both of his table and his retirement. He was also a man of great facetiousness and ready of wit, of which there are instances quoted even to this day, as the following, for instance. He was sitting at table opposite the king, who was on the other side of it, and the cups having gone round and the courses ended, Charles becoming more merry than usual, after some other things, on observing John do something offensive to the French notions of good breeding, he pleasantly rebuked him and said, What is there between a sot and a scot? On which John turned back this hard hit on its author and made answer, A table only. What could be more facetious than this reply? The king had asked him with reference to the different notions of manners, whereas John made answer with reference to the distance of space. Nor indeed was the king offended, for being captivated by this prodigy of science, he was unwilling to manifest displeasure by even a word against the master, 
for by that name he usually called him. At another time, when the servant had presented a dish to the king at table, which contained two very large fishes besides one somewhat smaller, he gave it to the master, that he might share it with two clerks who were sitting near him. They were persons of gigantic stature, while he himself was small in person. On this, ever devising something merry in order to cause amusement to those at table, he kept the two large ones for himself and divided the smaller one between the two clerks. On the king finding fault with the unfairness of the division, Nay, said he, I have acted right and fairly, for here is a small one, alluding to himself, and here two great ones, touching the fishes. Then, turning to the clerks, Here are two great ones, said he, pointing at the clerks, and here is a small one, touching the fish. At the request also of Charles, he translated the Hierarchia of Dionysius the Areopagite from Greek into Latin, word for word, the consequence of which is that the Latin version can hardly be understood from having been rendered rather according to the Greek order of the words than according to our own idiom. He also composed a treatise which he entitled Perifusion Merismu, that is to say, On the Divisions of Nature. Very useful for solving the perplexity as to some questions, making some allowance, however, for him on certain points. In some respects, he has certainly deviated from the track of the Latins by keeping his eyes intently fixed upon the Greeks, for which reason he has been even considered a heretic, and a certain florist wrote against him. And indeed, there are in his book Perifusion very many things which, unless they are most carefully examined, seem opposed to the Catholic faith. Pope Nicholas is known to have been of this opinion, for he says in an epistle to Charles, It has been reported to our apostleship that a certain man named John, by birth a Scot, has lately translated into Latin the work of St. Dionysius the Areopagite, which he eloquently wrote in Greek, touching the divine names and the celestial orders. Now, according to the usual custom, this ought to have been sent to us and submitted to the approval of our judgment, and the more especially as the said John, though he is stated to be a man of great knowledge, has been said for some time past by general report not to be quite sound on certain points. In consequence of this discredit, he became tired of France and came to King Alfred, by whose munificence he was appointed a teacher and settled at Malmesbury, as appears from the king's writings. Here, some years afterwards, he was stabbed with their writing instruments by the boys whom he was teaching, and quitted this life in great and cruel torments, at a period when, his weakness waxing stronger and his hand shaking, he had often asked in vain that he might experience the bitterness of death. He lay for some time with an ignoble burial in the Church of St. Lawrence, the scene of his shocking death, but after the divine favor for many nights had honored him by a ray of fire, the monks, being thus admonished, transferred him to the greater church and placed him at the left side of the altar. So, thus ended the life and career of John the Scot. Maybe. Probably not. The tale of his death has been much debated. 
Those who see a real murder at the root of it point out that his passion for Greek ideas may have upset the more orthodox around him, perhaps to the point of violent suppression. And indeed, his ideas remained controversial. The Paraphysian was officially condemned in the 11th century and again in the 13th century, and just three years after the first printed version was made in 1681, it was put on the Index of Prohibited Books at Oxford University. Others have suggested that the death happened to a different John at Oxford, and the stories got muddled together somehow. And still others argue that he wasn't murdered, but that the story is meant to be taken figuratively, that he was killed, so to speak, by the deadly dull work of his students, a theme that our friend Eberhard the schoolmaster would probably agree with. Adding to the doubtfulness of the schoolroom murder tale is the fact that this story basically enters the record with William of Malmesbury 400 years after the fact, and John is only added to the martyrologies another 200 years after that, so the notion that this is an original and authentic tradition is pretty shaky. And of course, being recognized as a martyr at these moments is just one more instance of this regular pendulum swing in John's reputation, a heretic at one moment, a theological martyr at another. We might also observe that a saintly teacher being stabbed to death by the styli of impia students shows up in other saints' lives. The one that probably has the best likelihood of actually being true concerns St. Cassian of Imola, who was a Christian supposedly executed by his pagan students in the 4th century. We also find it appearing in the later Middle Ages in the life of St. Felix of Nola, or Felix Inpincus, as told in the Golden Legend. Since I have an English text of that life, from William Caxton's 1483 printing, I thought I'd read that for you, so you can compare the two scenes. The stylus murder here is almost certainly a spurious account, probably originating from a folk etymology in which the byname Pincus was taken to refer to the pinke or points of the student's styli, when in fact, it's probably the name of a shrine at which he was buried. Indeed, this life acknowledges these two competing explanations, and even gives us essentially two different death scenes for the saint. It also goes on to explain why St. Felix is a patron saint of spiders, here called by Caxton spin cops. If you remember the discussion of our mystery word lob from episode 45, you'll recall cop being a word for spider, and here we see an example of it out in the wild, as it were. Another word to quickly define is panem, which is a French-influenced Middle English variant of pagan that Caxton uses. All right, let's hear The Life of St. Felix from the Golden Legend. Felix was surnamed Inpincus and is said of the place where he resteth, or of the pointils of grefs. A gref is properly called a pointil to write in tables of wax, by which he suffered death. And some say that he was a schoolmaster, and taught children, and was to them much rigorous. After he was known of the Paynims, and because he confessed plainly that he was Christian and believed in Jesu Christ, he was delivered to be tormented into the hands of the children his scholars, whom he had taught and learned, which scholars slew him with their pointils, pricks, and grefts, and yet the church holdeth him for no martyr, but for a confessor. And the Paynim said to him that he should do sacrifice to the idols, but he blew on them, and anon they fell to the earth. 
It is read in a legend that when Maximus, Bishop of Nola, and Valerian fled the persecution of the Paynims, the bishop was tormented with hunger and thirst so much that he fell down to the ground, wherefore Felix was sent of an angel to him, and he bare nothing with him for to give to him, and he saw by him a cluster of raisins hanging on a tree, which he on his shoulders hastily and bare it with him. And when the bishop was dead, Felix was elected and chosen to be bishop. And as he preached on a time, the persecutors sought him, and he hid in the clefts of a broken wall, and incontinent by the will of God came spin cops and made their work and nets before him that they might not find him. And when the tyrants could not find him, they went their way, and he went thence and came to the house of a widow, and took there his refection of her three months, and yet he saw her never in the visage. And at last, when the peace was made, he went him into his church and there died, and rested in our Lord, and was buried by the city in a place that was called Pincus. And this Felix had a brother, which was in likewise named Felix. And when this Felix was constrained to adore the idols, he said, Ye be enemies unto your gods, for if ye bring me to them like as my brother did, they shall fall to the earth and break. On a time this Felix did do labor in his garden, where he had set coals and warts for his use, and some of his neighbors would have stolen away these coals and warts, and hoed in the garden all the night, and digged, and on the morning St. Felix saluted them, and anon they confessed their sin, and he pardoned them, and then they went their way. And a little while after the Paynims came for to take St. Felix, and anon so great dolor and pain took them that they began to howl as dogs, and he said to them, Believe ye in God, and say ye that Jesu Christ is very God, and do you to be baptized, and ye shall be whole, and your pain shall cease. And so they did, and anon they were all whole. And after the bishop of the idols came to him and said, Sire, as soon as our God saw thee, he fled. And when I said, Why fleest thou? He said, I may not suffer the virtue of Felix, and when my God doubteth thee, much more I ought to doubt thee. And when Felix had confirmed him in the faith, he baptized him. And Felix said to them that adored Apollo, If Apollo be very God, let him say to me what I hold in my hand. And he had in his hand a schedule wherein was written the orison of our Lord, that is, the Paternoster. And he might not answer, wherefore the Paynims were converted to our Lord. And at last, when he had sung his mass and the peace given to the people, he fell down in prayer upon the pavement of the church, and passed out of this life unto our Lord. So there's the life of St. Felix, and also his brother, St. Felix, hmm, uh, from the golden legend of Jacobus de Veragine, as translated into English and printed by William Caxton. Speaking of Felix's, I'll conclude by quoting the inscription on John Scotus Eugena's tomb, recorded in John of Forden's Chronicle of the Scottish Nation, as translated from the Latin by Felix J. H. Skane in 1872. It reads, The holy sophist John here buried lies, In life endowed with wondrous wealth of lore, He earned at last by martyrdom to rise To Christ and reign with saints forevermore. All right, let's resolve our riddle from last episode. The riddle was, The shining pelican whose yawning throat Gulps down the waters of the sea Long since produced me, white as he. 
Through snowy fields I keep a straight road, leaving deep blue tracks upon the gleaming way, and darkening the fair champagne with black and tortuous paths. Yet one way through the plain suffices not, for with a thousand bypaths runs the road, and them who stray not from it leads to heaven. This is a riddle of Aldhelm, and the answer is a cousin to our murder weapon of choice this episode. It is a quill pin. One interesting thing about this riddle, um, I guess it's not that uncommon, but for some reason it struck me as odd. This riddle starts with a literal description. The pin is the feather of the pelican. But then it shifts to a metaphorical description, with writing being presented as tracks upon a snowy field, which then piggybacks on the cliché metaphor of theology as a path to salvation. But if we threw out every riddle that mixed its metaphors we'd hardly have any left. Uh, we're only going to have one more episode this year, uh, and it'll be coming a bit early, or really it'll be coming right on time if this episode hadn't been running late, uh, but it'll drop just right before Christmas. And we have a mystery word for that episode, and here it is. Nesen. N-E-S-E-N. So that's from some medieval language, and I'll give you the hint that it has something to do with the season. All right, I've still got some final papers I have to go grade. We'll be back probably on the 22nd or 23rd with a bit of Christmas spirit. Until then, you can keep track of us in all the usual places on Twitter at MDT Podcast, at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, where you can also email me at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. And with that, I can hear my students tapping their styli on my office door, and I must away. So good luck, exam takers and paper writers and portfolio fillers and everyone else. Thanks for listening. <laughs>